making Mother's Day a national observance. It was designed to be, quote, as a public expression of our love and reverence for the mothers of our country, unquote. So it's become somewhat traditional on this Sunday for the sermon in some way to touch directly or indirectly towards motherhood. And I think that as Christians, as the government encourages us in ways that also align with Scripture, I think we can, we can gladly participate. Mothers do have an important place in this world. Uh, even if you didn't have the greatest of mothers, um, there's plenty of reasons by which we ought to give thanks and to hold and honor the person who brought us into the world. Probably all of us, I think, can muster cherished memories of the one who carried us in the womb for nine months, who nursed us, changed our diapers, endured sleepless nights, and wiped the snot from our noses. And even if you don't have memories of your birth mother, you can be thankful that she did carry you. And maybe you have an adoptive mother. Maybe you have a spiritually adoptive mother, or maybe a very literal adoptive mother. I want to encourage you just to take a moment today to speak words of gratitude to them, and many of you already have, but there's nothing like being specific of saying exactly what it is that you're thankful for to your mother. Now, not all of us are mothers or called to be mothers, but it's important for the church to understand and appreciate the honored place that mothers have in gospel preservation. In fact, you don't have to be a mother at all. In fact, you could be a lady within the context of a church family providing motherly care and doing gospel work. You have an honored place within the family of God. It's important for us to understand that historically the church has taken an active role, a very active role in the regard of the care of children. Christians were very aggressive in the first centuries when most of the Roman Empire could care less about infants and children, would leave them to be abandoned and to, to die of exposure. And it was Christians who, who gathered these children up and brought them into homes and raised them, even though they had biological children of their own. In fact, uh, during the mid-1800s in, in England, excuse me, George Mueller, a godly believer in Christ, prayer warrior, established orphanages to, to gather up the impoverished, uh, poverty-stricken children off the streets of, of London. The Sunday school movement, which began in the late 1800s, provided resources to poor children so they know how to read and write, and that they would have the Word of God in in their understanding so that they might embrace Christ. Children's ministries like Child Evangelism Fellowship and summer camps like Mount Lusanne and, and many others and youth programs like Awana are, have often been founded or, or been, had women entirely connected to ministries. Now, not all of them have been mothers, but all of them have had a heart for children and young people. 
And so I think it's important for us to stop and think carefully about how, how valuable you women are in the kingdom of God. And a motherly desire for the well-being of children has and continues to be an important place in the preservation of the gospel from generation to generation. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, the text that we read, there is implied generational context in the passing of faith from one generation to the other and affecting young Timothy. It's important for us to understand that women play a, a significant role in the environment, in the creation of an environment for faith in the gospel to flourish. You are the moms, if particularly you've been blessed to have children, you are like a frontline missionary. You provide a credibility to the gospel message for young ears as they hear it growing up. And there's practical demonstrations of the gospel that you, you live out in your life that provides a foundation for that faith to flourish. And as the Word is taught, it, it gets credibility. It makes sense as you live out the truths of the gospel in your own home. Now, it's often said that, from, that we're really just about one generation always from losing the gospel. And if the gospel is ever assumed in one generation, it's going to be neglected, it's going to be ignored, and abandoned in the next generation. So we must keep guarding it. We must keep uh, suffering for, continuing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, growing in our understanding of it. And all ladies who are here, whether you have children or not, you play such a vital role intergenerationally for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's important that you're growing in your own personal understanding so you're able to apply the truths in all of your relationships as adults, adult to adult, so that those who are younger are looking up and seeing it modeled. And it's also important as you interact with your own children or other people's children. And so this morning, we're going to look at what the gospel is in this letter, just briefly, very briefly, and consider if we are Christian parents… And then how we make the environment for the gospel to flourish in our homes and in our relationships. And so, this morning, it's important for us to understand that there are varied contours of how we speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this little letter of 2 Timothy, Paul highlights a few of these ways in which we speak about the glorious good news of Jesus. And I want to just very quickly, very shorthand descriptions that surface. And when we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that it is Christ-centered. It centers on Him. From start to finish, there is no gospel without Jesus. He's the hero of the story. And the word Christ is a king word. And because Jesus is the king who has risen from the grave, the gospel message calls all people to come to Christ. 
It calls us all to bow the knee to King Jesus. It calls moms to bow the knee to King Jesus. It calls dads. It calls all people. In chapter 2, I hope you have your Bible here this morning because I want to flip around a little bit. But in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for whom I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. All of Paul's existence of suffering and everything was contingent upon King Jesus, risen from the dead. It's Christ-centered good news that we bring. But it's important for us to understand as we talk about the gospel, it's also biblically based. Turn with me over to chapter 3 of the same book. Chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing that from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. In all of the scriptures, God has presented the anticipation of and the reflection on the saving work of Jesus Christ. And the gospel declares his kingdom, his coming kingdom, and his kingdom now as he rules in people's hearts and tells us how that we as the people of God ought to live, and it's through the scriptures. This good news is being presented. So when we speak of the gospel, we see it as a Christ-centered message. We see it as biblical. It's all through the fabric of Scripture. But it's also historical. It's not just a story. It's not just a a cute nursery rhyme that we, we tell the kids at night. Christ appeared in real space and time, and he lived in our human history, and he is coming again. He is coming again. The final drama is still yet to come. And so we can have a confidence in the historical truths that are recorded for us. We can also have the confidence that the historical future truths are going to come to pass. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 18... Paul is utterly confident in the historical Jesus when he says in verse 18, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So when we think about the gospel, we see it as Christ-centered. It's told throughout the pages of Scripture. It's historical, but it's also doctrinal. Doctrinal, I It's important for us to understand this word, doctrine. Christians, we treasure the the many truths that are contained within the whole gospel, the good news. In fact, Paul refers to many of these truths in this little letter, and, and for time's sake, I can't go into all of them, but even in the first verse... He says in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, And Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. The promise of life. 
is a doctrine, it's a teaching, it's a truth that's contained inside the message of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever eaten pomegranate fruit before, but if you cut open a pomegranate fruit and you open it up, there's all these little beautiful little seeds inside. Think about the gospel as that pomegranate fruit, and you cut it open, there's all these little seeds that express the mighty truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so all of these wonderful truths need to be explored to be fully understood. We need to know what the word justification is about. We need to know what the word sanctification, glorification, they have great meaning and truth for us because they're in Jesus Christ. And so, Paul wants us, it's really important for us to understand the contours of what we're talking about. It's also personal. The gospel is personal. All of this truth, all this teaching about Jesus Christ has to be received through faith just as Timothy and his mother and his grandmother received it through faith. It's personal. Chapter 1, verse 5 Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. This is a personal aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot transfer it to another person by osmosis. Each person individually has to put their own faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can do everything we can as mothers and fathers and as believers in Christ to create this environment, this environment for faith to flourish, but ultimately, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And lastly, last contour here this morning, I'm trying to be very quick, but we have to to see that the gospel is also practical too. The gospel has everything to do with our family and our finances because it's King Jesus who is calling us to follow Him. Everything, how we raise our children and our purity and relations in the church and ministries and affections and fears, all of this is subservient. It falls underneath of Jesus Christ. What would He have us to do? And He shows us in the pages of Scripture. And the gospel calls unbelievers to repentance. But the gospel also calls believers to rest in the unfailing love and grace of Jesus Christ and to turn and serve Him however He calls us. How do we live as we await for the coming of the King? These are all contours of the gospel. But I think it's important for us to ask ourselves this morning, are you a Christian parent that grasps and appreciates and understands the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you personally embraced the truths? Have you submitted yourself to Him? See, Christians who are converted Christians, they understand and they believe that they are morally unable to stand in the presence of God. They also believe, though, that because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we are given Christ's perfection, His holiness, 
so that we are able to stand in His presence. And this comes to us not because we work ourselves up to it. It comes because of grace alone through faith alone in Him. The law can't save us. And as Christian parents, we have to realize that the law cannot transform us either. We need the Holy Spirit to do this work of transformation in our heart. Christians know that the gospel is a message that unbelievers need to hear, but also Christian parents understand that we need it as well. If we're not careful, we can start training miniature unbelievers in our own homes. If we forget everything that we know about the deadliness of relying upon our own good works to perform and create morality, if we're not careful, we're communicating being good, at least outwardly, is the be-all and end-all of, their, of our children's faith. That's not the gospel. It's moralism. The Bible is not primarily a list of do's and don'ts. There are rules in it. There are guidelines. That's true. They're going to show you things that demonstrate that if you do some of these things, your wife will be better than than it could be. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing necessarily as much as it is about God and what He has done. You can't do what He has done. And you need the gospel. I need the gospel. And I need to communicate the gospel in my parenting to my children. Grace is not moralism. And that ought to make our parenting radically different from the way unbelievers parent. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is meant to permeate and transform all of what we do. You stop and think about it, and I had a very difficult week in some respects. The truth is, I can't love my family the way that I ought to love my family. We have to have the courage to recognize that we cannot love the way Christ loves without Christ loving and through our hearts. And when we recognize that we cannot love the way Christ loves, we have to repent of our sin and self-reliance and believe that Jesus loved us with His grace and He can allow us and change our hearts so that we empathize and we have compassion and our hearts turn to see other people as the way Christ sees them. God is faithful, though. We do fail. He's faithful to parents who turn and seek forgiveness and restitution. And God is faithful as we model that and show that to our children. And if we fail to teach humility and repentance and forgiveness at all times, God is faithful still. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 says, if we are faithful, faithless. He remains faithful, 
That is the rock bed of the gospel, unconditional love. So how do we create an environment for faith and the gospel to flourish? I mean, you have to have this concept very clearly about, are you a Christian parent? It's the primary principle that all these next observations, things that that we can do to create an environment are contingent upon. And this letter is written by Paul to a young minister of the gospel, and I think that women cannot find real encouragement here as their role as a nurturer has so much value for the kingdom of God, especially if you're prayerfully dependent upon God in the process. And I believe you can create an environment where the gospel has a chance to be heard and to flourish. I was thinking of just the truthfulness of what Bruce said, you know, that that unconditional love of his mother created a framework that, that called him to Christ when he was wanting to go away. And it's important for us to see some things here in these three or four verses that Timothy begins his, or Paul begins his letter to Timothy with. And the first of these, I want to encourage you to, as mothers to, and even fathers, be compassionate. Be compassionate. In verse 1, excuse me, in verse 3 it says, I thank God in whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Verse 4, the first part says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. As Paul remembered the tears, what's going on here? Paul was transferred from, to Rome as a, as a prisoner, and he's probably not going to leave the dungeon with his life. And, and he had to leave people behind. He left behind Timothy, and it was very emotional for, for Paul. It was also very emotional for Timothy. And tears came. And Paul looked back, and he remembered that these tears came. Timothy was a compassionate person. The tears flowed. I know that the spilling of tears comes easier for other people, but I believe that at the very root of the tear spillage is compassion. And the closer we become intertwined with people, the harder it is for the emotional among us to keep it together. I know that crying can be a hereditary thing, just as some, you know, some dogs are kind of more empathetic creatures. We as people can be very empathetic in some respects. But I believe there's a glimpse here, though, into the heart of Timothy, his mother, his grandmother, that within his childhood, he was surrounded with a compassion. And that compassion makes for fertile gospel soil because the gospel itself is founded in the compassion of God for people who are weak, who are sinful, deserving of hell, and even spitting in His face. Romans 5, 7 through 8 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Compassion is a form of unconditional love. Compassionate care is certainly a part of motherhood. I mean, there isn't a day, probably for most moms, where you don't kiss the finger, you don't shoulder the… There's a, you know, most days, maybe it's not every day, but there's times where you shoulder the tears. You're defending the rights of your children who are being oppressed by other people. And that's where most moms excel. And I say most moms because there's always some who are a little bit less compassionate, especially when it was all their stupid fault. But compassion does not excuse stupidity or sin. Compassion looks at a person who's hurting and desires better for them. And Christ had that look at us and said, I want better for them. A compassionate person sees a hurting person, whether it's their stupid fault or not. They're like the Good Samaritan. And a gospel-rooted compassion sees sin, but yet it seeks to help people get out from underneath of sin so they stop hurting themselves. It seeks for ways to bring deep help to those who are hurting. I can't stress how important it is to demonstrate a compassion to children even who may be disrespecting your authority. Rather than taking it personally, you need to look at this defiance that's looking you directly in the eyes and see that it's hurting them. Don't take it personally. Have compassion for their souls. And that goes a whole long way towards helping them get out from underneath of that hurt. Second, not only we need to develop compassion, we need, we need to be pleasant. We need to be pleasant. The last part of the verse there, you get a little indication, the kind of environment that he grew up in. He says that, you know, he, Paul's looking and says, I, you know, I, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Timothy was enjoyable to be with. And it brought joy to Paul as he anticipated, and it's very likely that his mother and grandmother were also very pleasant to be around as well. Lots of families have war stories, I think, about the near relatives who are not pleasant to be around. You know, old, that crazy uncle or whoever. You know, as I said, there are breeds of dogs that are more pleasant to be with, and so it is with people. I mean, but if you have a Rottweiler personality… You know that spending time with Christ can temper your soul. As you talk to God in prayer, I mean like really talk to God in prayer, not just lay me down to sleep, but telling Him your angst and your feeling and your pain and your regrets, you'll find someone who will temper and change your soul. It will create in you a identity of somebody who is pleasant to be around because you've been with someone who is pleasant to be around. Moms are usually good at this. 
I always found my mother as someone with whom I could share my struggles with and cares, and she was never one to turn away. She was always pleasant to be around, 95% of the time. Well, 98, 99. When it was my fault, I wasn't that pleasant to be around. Abby also had a similar experience growing up, particularly in junior high when she was crushed at times, and she found a mother who was there to hear her. Are you pleasant to be around? Do you listen, or do you mostly talk? Sometimes take a moment to think about the kinds of things that you talk about with other people. Do you feel your conversations always with problems, troubles, and trials? Do you ever take the time to really listen to other people to see what they're going through? Do you ever take the time to think through that this might be an opportunity to bless other people by listening to them? Ask God to help you to listen well to other people. It will increase your pleasantness factor. Number three, be genuine. In verse 5, He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your mother, your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. There was a genuineness of faith. It was sincere. There was no pretense. There was no show. It was real. And this authentic faith was found in mom and grandma. And as a young man, I, I, I saw this in my parents. And I believe that that genuineness of faith creates an environment for the gospel to flourish in. They were, my parents weren't perfect, but they weren't hypocrites. They weren't one way on Sunday and a different way during the week. They weren't perfect, and when they sinned, they let me know. They repented of their sin, and they at, seek, sought my forgiveness. And it was so helpful for me to see the difference between faith and non-faith because when I was in a public school environment, I saw clearly black and white, and I saw my parents as a living and genuine faith. I think I'm in ministry today because of that. I think that my brother and sister are involved in their local churches, even though they're not directly in ministerial staff positions, because of it. And also, ultimately, the grace of God. And I know that some who have lived a sincere faith before their children have had the deep regret to discover that their children are not following in their parents' footsteps. Often when we look at the church and we look at the children in the church, we often say, hey, this is the future of the church. Not necessarily. The future of the church are those who hear the shepherd's voice and follow him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But a sincere faith creates an opportunity for faith to be genuine and the gospel uh, belief to flourish. I think as parents, it's important for us to understand that we don't make our children believers. As parents, we water, we plant but it is God who gives the increase, and we have to trust Him for it. 
There is also courageousness here I see in this, these ladies who modeled. In verse 7, it says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And if the sincere faith of the mothers was the same, this is the, what they were modeling. A courageous faith, full of love, is described here. Perfect love casts out fear. Out fear. You know, we're not going to be fearful to be bold and courageous for Christ without a full confidence in Him. Now, I know motherhood is not for the faint of heart. I don't know that firsthand. I see it through observation. But as young women mature and they grow in confidence, they gain skills to become strong leaders for Christ in their homes, and often this develops into other spheres of life, like in their workplaces or in education or in their communities. And God blesses ladies who take a courageous stand for Christ. Women fight similar demons as men, but different. They come in different shapes and forms. They have, at times, unique fears. I was, list, I was had, a while ago, I had read an excerpt from Noelle Piper's book, Faithful Women and Their Extraordinary God. And she described a young girl who had a believing mother. And in this case, her grandmother was not believing, and she grew up in Korea. And the little girl's name was E. Suk. And she was growing un up under this influence of a grandmother who was not believing, but she had a mother who was faithful. And she began to recognize the difference between the gods of each of these ladies in her life. Grandmother was bitter, she was unhappy, and she began to recognize that the idols that she worshipped were causing this root of unhappiness in her life. And then she recognized how that her mother was pleasant and the God she served brought joy and happiness. And so she began to identify that at the very root of her grandmother's misery were these idols that she was worshiping. And so what she did, she one day uh, sneaked off into the storage room where food was being set aside to be offered as a sacrifice to this, this God, this idol. And you know what she did? <laughs> She cried out in the closet, where in that storage room, she said, You devils! Why do you eat the best foods and then make my grandmother unhappy? Die! Die eating the food mixed with my spit. And she stuck her finger right in the food. That's a courageous little girl. But it comes from her great God. Idols have no power. And it's important for believing bombs to verbalize the absolute kingship of Christ as the only power. And ladies, spit on those Instagram goddesses that demand that you look like them to be happy and fulfilled. Instead, create an environment where your children know that you're not captive by the idols of materialism and the approval of people. Show them that you know that you serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Jesus Christ. We can be courageous as followers of Christ. Be self-controlled, verse 7. The last part here says, so that God has not given the spirit of fear and power and love, but self-control. That's the control of self. I always looked at this word and thought, I don't understand this word. It doesn't make sense to me. But when I, when I figured out that it was saying that it's the control of self, it made a little bit more sense to me. Our selfish nature is ADHD. And we become like a city without a wall that gets broken into. Uh, in Proverbs says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And self-control is the governance of our desires. And, and, and a lot of our self-desires are not wrong in themselves. In fact, moderation for some of our desires are totally appropriate. But lest you think I've been talking about just eating, it's not what I'm talking about primarily, although that could be a source of need for self-control. And I'm in that realm right now of need for self-control. I'm on a diet again. But you know what? An athlete may be strict in his diet, but totally lacking in his ability to control his tongue or to control his temper. You may be able to control the exterior, but what the Spirit does, it controls the interior. A person who is easy to fly off the handle at their children will not produce an environment for the faith in the gospel to flourish. To live the gospel, we must acknowledge our need for the gospel as Christians. We can't control our tempers. We can't. We cannot. But God can. We've got to confess with sorrow our utter inability, just like the lame person who can't get up off the ground. We can't get up off the ground, but God is faithful, and He will help you to change. Call upon His name. He will help you. And the last way that we can build an environment for faith to flourish is found in chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, We need to be convicted about the Word of God. In chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, Paul, towards the end here, says, But as for you, continue what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing that from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He was acquainted with the sacred writings because he had mom's who made sure he was acquainted with the sacred writings. Many people have a theology allergy. We're afraid of it. But it's important to realize that our faith is not just a state of mind. It's not a mystical experience. It's not these abstract comments. But it's doctrine. It's truth. It's real. God is real. And it's important for us to embrace these things as a part of understanding who God is. The gospel is contained within the Holy Scriptures. Digging down deep into the Word of God personally as moms is not a wasted experience. 
I know that there are so many things to do as a mother that it's hardly, like, do you have time to even get a, a nap? But I promise you that as you position yourself in the Word of God and you become familiar and conversant with the Word of God, it will spread to your children. Later in this letter, Paul reminds Timothy of his rich heritage of leaning and learning the Scriptures. Whether it was his mother or grandmother who taught him, we do know that it was a priority that became transferred to Timothy. I think it's important for us to understand that we need to have a personal conviction about the Word of God that does something with the Word of God. Mothers have always had an honored place within gospel preservation. Some of our earliest memories have been with our mothers. Actually, some of my earliest memories with my mother were in the context of discipline. Now, that may sound strange, but I saw a mother who made sure that my sin did not go unchallenged, but she also, in those moments, prayed with me and explained to me that I was a sinner and that I needed Jesus as my Savior. That is a tremendous blessing that I inherited. A Christian mother recognizes that she's not going to be perfect and never will be until she is transformed into His image at the day of Christ's return. But she doesn't let that discourage her. She knows the good news of Jesus Christ makes her perfect in God's eyes. And a Christian mother has turned in her being good enough, she's not going to be good enough anymore to get into heaven. She's going to trust God who makes her good in His sight. A Christian mother sees the gospel as protection like a greenhouse so that she can grow and blossom without the relentless pressure of the law hanging over her head. She matures in her understanding of the gospel and practices prayer. And so she embraces some of these traits of the gospel of growing in compassion, in pleasantness, genuineness, courage, self-control, and conviction. So it's important for us to see this morning, if I haven't said it enough, women play a significant role in the creation of an environment for faith in the gospel to flourish. You have a great place in the kingdom of God. A really important role. Don't be discouraged in well-doing. In due season you will reap if you faint not. I know not all of us have been called to be mothers, but it's important for us as ladies in this church to recognize the great role you have in the church to influence children for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can start in the home, but it doesn't have to stay in the home. It can spread out of the home into the body of Christ. Let's pray.